All right, guys, it's time for the next level guy show. A men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guest is Dean Stoat. We discuss how to become relentless in your own life. Dean is a former British Special Forces soldier. He's a two-time world record holder, an adventurer, a philanthropist, author and international speaker. After making it through the Special Forces grueling six-month selection process, Dean became one of the very first Army members to join the SBS, which is the Special Boat Service. Through his esteemed military career, he's conducted deployments to overseas hostile environments and has been involved in counter-terrorism operations and he's travelled to some of the toughest places in the world. Dean left the military in 2011, and after 16 honourable years of service, he continues to live by the Special Forces ethos of the unrelenting pursuit of excellence. The determination required throughout his career has become an integral part of Dean's character. He then established a distinguished career in the private security sector. He was renowned for his willing to take on any job, no matter how dangerous. The man went where others wouldn't. He's faced extortion, kidnapping, civil war, pirates military coups and was single-handedly responsible for the evacuation of the Canadian Embassy in 2014, rescuing four diplomats and 18 military personnel. However, in 2016, Dean was ready for a new project and wanted to use this to help others. He began training to cycle the longest motorboat road in the world, the Pan American Highway. Dean completed the 14,000 miles route from Argentina to Alaska in May of 2018, gaining two world records and raising an incredible amount of money for charity in the process. Dean passed through 14 countries on his expedition, crossing some of the most dangerous passages in the world. Prior to his training, Dean has never cycled more than a few miles. In the final stretch, Dean continued for 17 hours and, driven by his determination, covered 340 miles on his longest day. Dean is now a renowned international speaker, presenting to FTSE 100 companies, sporting bodies, military departments, businesses and schools, and so much more. Dean has presented inspiring talks to 10,000 people at the O2 Arena through to 25 local children in impoverished areas. Dean firmly believes with the right mindset and plan, nothing you truly desire is out of reach. To him, impossible simply means it hasn't been done. Yet. And in this interview, we discuss the benefits of the military lifestyle, how he went from cycling 40,000 miles after only doing 20 miles at its most, building resilience in her own life, hacks, tips and protocols you need to build right now to chase your goals and so much more. And now let's get to the interview. Thank you so much for coming on. You, you're you a big inspiration for me. Love the book. Love finding more about you. You seem to go from challenges to jumping at the planes like it's nothing. You do all these amazing things. But for people who don't know you, could you just give a quick introduction? How would you explain your amazing life? Yeah, I've been, I, I say I've been very fortunate, but I, I probably haven't at the, at the beginning. You know, I, I was born into a military family, you know, my father was in the military, and so I was immersed 
in that sort of environment. So every three years I would find myself, by the time I was just starting to settle down into school, we'd be up, up and moving again. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I, I, was, I was born into that, that environment. My parents split up when I was eight years old. Uh, my mother took us, me and my sisters to Manchester and we ended up in a homeless home in, in Moss Side, which is probably the, one of the roughest estates in, in the UK, uh, at the time. Um, Fast forward two two years later, my father gets custody of us and we're now back down in Aldershot, which was home of the British Army. And my father then left the military. And that was the time, the first time uh, when I was 12 years old in that whole 12 years that we, we'd settled. So we settled in a little village in Surrey. Up until then, we'd just been like nomads. We'd just literally be moving, packing our bags, packing the house and, and, and kept moving. So that was the first sort of real stability in my life. And I finished my sort of schooling in Surrey I always wanted to be a fireman you know that has always been my aspirations as a young child I always wanted to be a fireman but when I left school um something like 2000 you know early 90s 1993 there was like 2000 applications for one job so as a young 17 year old a you had to be 18 anyway you know the the odds were stacked up against me um I went to college started college but I didn't really interested in education you know I didn't really know what I wanted to do so I went on a, a surfing holiday with my friends down Newquay it was supposed to be two weeks and it lasted six months and uh, <laughs> my father then came looking for me my father actually you know is from Mont- Montrose so he, he's like a, a very strict Scottish sergeant major and long before mobile phones you know came looking for me found me working in a surf shop and he's like right you know you ruined your education you know sort of what are you going to do with your life? And so I, I told him I would join the military. At that point, I didn't really, still didn't know what I wanted to do, but I just thought to silence the noise of joining the military. And my father, you know, rather than give me those warm, comforting words and give me advice, he was like, last two minutes, you know, you know, 65 kilos and five foot seven, I could see where he was potentially coming from. But, you know, part of my story is, is You'll always get people, the naysayers and them like who tell you you can't do it and, and, and give you reasons why. And there's no point in arguing with them, you know what I mean? Because you're not going to get anywhere. The best way to prove them wrong is actually by actions, is, is going and doing it yourself. So although still in the back of my head, my dad's comment, I went on and, and went joined the military at the age of 17. And by the age of 21... I joined the Royal Engineers. My father was Royal Engineers as well, so I sort of followed that path um, with him, try and get a trade and get as much as I could from the military because him and both I thought we would probably be in for a short period to get as much as you can during that, that time. But that by the age of 21, I was a para commando, a diver, a PTI. I had done every sort of arduous course that the, the military could offer. You know, I was then fortunate to go back as an instructor on the commando course. And each year was passing by, you know, turned from three years into six and in, in, into, into nine. It was like, but as I was doing it, I, the first few years, I sort of I grew quite quick. And every course I did, I, I then became more confident physically and mentally in what I, I could mm. achieve. And then I then looked at, well, what was next? I didn't, I wasn't doing that from the start. There's a few guys, obviously I went to Special Forces, which we'll talk about. There's a few guys I was on selection with for Special Forces. All they've ever wanted to be from a young lad age of seven or eight is a Royal Marine or in the SES or the SPS. I didn't have that sort of vision. So for me, it was like, right, let's do this course. Right, what's next? And before I knew it, you know, you, you're starting to sort of filter yourself into only one direction. And I went commandos and then 
reconnaissance commandos and the next the only next step for you then is is the special forces but coming from an army background the army would go to the SAS and the Royal Marines would go to the SBS but when I went on selection they'd open up the doors try service that you had the option you could choose so much to the disgust of my friends in the SAS I decided to go to the SBS and the reason or my thinking behind that was because I'd spent eight years in free commander brigade um, with the Marines. Uh, I was now the senior dive instructor for the army at the defense diving school. So the SBS was a natural fit to me even than the SAS. And yeah, I did selection six months later, became one of the first candidates to go to the SBS from the army. And I think now if I'm right in saying it's about 15% of the SBS are from the army. So that was my, in a nutshell, that was my military career from my from my childhood. You know, as any other child, you know, I got into scrapes in the in the, in the school playgrounds. But I, for me, that was, you know, you learn from them, you get resilience, and you just move move forward. You know, I wasn't a a golden child. I wasn't a golden soldier. You know, again, I made mistakes in the military, but I just learned from and went forward. And do you think that kind of that time that you were homeless and it built that resilience in you, that kind of relentless attitude, to, you know, because you were looking after you and your sisters, that you were in an area you didn't know. Do you think that's where that mindset comes from? Or was there a time as a child you felt, you know, what what made you this guy that wants to go and just constantly challenge yourself and constantly do these amazing things? Do you think there's inbuilt or is there an event you can think of that it kind of was promoted from? I think there's probably a number, a number of factors, you know, going back to the homeless one, you know, you, you've gone from being in a very stable home, having a mother and a father being fed and things like that, to hmm. not having a father figure, not knowing when you're going to be fed, fighting in the playground. You know, me and my sisters were the only what, Caucasian white kids in the playground. So you can imagine the attention that brought. So that would, so straight away that, that built a defensive layer for me in being able to yeah. think about a young age, eight year old, being able to protect yourself and your sister and, and your mom and, and things like that. My father, he was in, the, as I mentioned, he was in the military. He was the army coach, football manager, coach and player. So I didn't really know much about the military other than my dad plays football. You know, it's what we would call a tracksuit soldier. So he was very competitive, you know, competitive driven and, so I did. I do feel I got that from that element from my father. You know, mm. even even on Christmas Day, there'd be competitions on the ball games. You know, everything was a competition, which I liked. Yeah. You know, I, I like got a brother like that. Ah, I like that competitive yeah. drive and things. Like that. And the great thing as well is, you know, for me, I was always trying to beat my dad. And my dad, I still I do it with my kids. You know, if they want to race up the stairs, I won't let them win until they can <laughs> win. And, and that's something I was always pushing against my father till I could then, then beat him. So there was, there was that element um, there. And then when I joined the military, like I said, I didn't have any aspirations to go in special forces. You know, I got through basic training. And then as I started growing physically, you know, I then became more confident mentally as well. And then I was pushing myself and I was then becoming top student, top student, top student. And then it was like, right, what next? And then that, that obviously then builds up a, a confidence, a self-confidence. And there's a fine line between, you know, confidence and arrogance, you know, it's knowing that you can do it. There's those that, you know, they give it that, but actually can't perform. So for me, it's like I knew that I, I, I could perform. 
Um, so I think it's an element of, yes, maybe a bit from my father, maybe a bit from my childhood resilience and then mm-hmm. what I picked up along the way in the military. And in the military, I was also looking at, at those, my peers, and learning. I was like a sponge. I was literally learning as much as I could from all these people, from their experiences when they went on special forces. So that when I went on there, I had as much knowledge as I could you know, to give, my, give myself as, the best opportunity as possible. Because you've, you've done an amazing job. I mean, you've like you know, you're based in California now. You've written an amazing book. You've achieved so much in your life. You know, when you've got that relentless sort of energy about you, and you know, you talked about your USP being you love to take a discipline or a sport and go, okay, how can I take this to the extreme? What insane challenge can I put myself through? Do you think that's part of it? It's that you've still got that need for fear, exhilaration, to challenge yourself. Do you yeah. think that's come from when you were younger? I think I think it's an element from when I was younger and from my time in the military. You know, I think it's it's, it's combined. You know, I was mm-hmm. I, I was guest speaking at the commando training center um, a couple of years ago, and myself and the commanding officer sat down. and we were talking about the recruits that they got coming in. They don't have that sort of resilience that, that we had growing up. But your resilience mm-hmm. and your fortune comes from your your childhood. You know. Children nowadays, they, they have a different upbringing. It's all about, you know, technology and things like that. Whereas we, as kids, you know, you had to go outside until it was pitch black, until it, it was raining. So, so I think for me, everyone, everyone's unique in the way they're upbringing and, and they'll have different levels of resilience. You know, I picked up some when I was in, in, as a child and I had enough to then get me in the military and that then took it to the next level. And then it's, for me, it's like, you know, one thing we, we, your listeners won't be aware of it. Obviously, I, after 16 years, I had to leave the military. I had a parachuting incident, which shortened my career. So I had no ambitions of leaving the military. I was a lifer. That was me until I, I got I got my full pension. Because of my parachuting injury, I had to leave the military first. So I hadn't, for me, I don't know whether I hadn't fulfilled what I wanted to do in the military. I did a hell of a lot when I was in the military. But I hadn't put, I hadn't, I wanted to continue pushing myself. So then when I left, as you touched on, you know, I then wanted to find, right, what's the next goals? What's the next thing I can do? And, you know, I only haven't only cycled 20 miles. I decided I was going to cycle the world's longest road, not just do it, but break a world record. So for me, it's, I have to set myself goals or have an objective. You know, if you said to me, well, you're going to cycle 14,000 miles, it's fine. But if you don't give me an objective or target to aim for, then I'll probably still there 18 months later. So I have to have something. Uh, and, and that sort of comes from that military, that everything we did, you had a mission, you had an objective. Um, and that's what I I mean, that's why I had to have you on, because I love that attitude of, I've just started cycling. Okay, what am I going to do next? Right, land's end to John O'Groats. Uh, okay, now I'm going to go ahead and do the, the, the longest road I can possibly find. And it's that attitude of like, how can I challenge myself? How can I take it to that next level? How can I be, you know, how can I just see the new challenge and go, okay, I'm going to triple that. I'm going to do this. Like, you know, it's, mm-hmm. I love that mindset and that kind of like the way you have of looking at life. But is there anything that you think that men should be doing? Should we all have a challenge like this? Do you think that's where we go wrong as society? I think, you know, I think your body, your body's like a river. Your body needs to keep flowing. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, once it comes stagnant, it's like a pond, you know, a stagnant pond, you get disease and things like that. So you need to keep 
going. You need to keep moving. Depend what you need to get the balance right, which sometimes I get wrong, is the flow of the river. And sometimes for me, I'm full on. And in fact, actually, I don't need to be full on. I don't need to be setting huge goals of cycling the world's longest road. Um, so I think for everyone, you need to have an objective. You know, whether that is, I'm not saying go cycle 14,000 miles, that's ludicrous. But whether you go do a 5K run, whether you go train for a CrossFit challenge or a Spartan race, you need something. Otherwise, you'll end up falling into this rut of, well, actually, I haven't got anything to train for. And I do it myself. And that's why I set these things. Because if I didn't set them, I would fall in that rut. And I would like, well, I don't need to train today. or you know. So I have to have an objective or something to, to aim for. So I think everyone you know, should have set themselves a challenge, whether it's you know, a small one or, or a huge one. Because that's the thing is we're on such a comfort zone now. You know, you can get food ordered to your door. You can get a, somebody to pick you up from your door. Oh, to, you, you, can order, well. <laughs> you, know, you can order a date from your phone. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's insane what you can do. It's like when we were younger, you used to go play in fields and play army and you were jumping off rocks and all this stuff. Kids nowadays don't do it. And it's, it's really sad to see. Um, it is. So, do you think there's like behaviors, skill sets, mindsets that the military teach you that, we could all adopt that, you know, men would be better having in their lives. Is there something that like the, you know, maybe the special forces or the army taught you, even if it's like making your bed in the morning and getting up at six o'clock and, you know, what, what do they teach you that you think would be good for all men? I think having a routine, you know, having a routine is good. Having a structure, you know, because if you don't have a structure, then, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm just as guilty as anyone else. If I don't have a structure for the day, you know, I'm quite happy to sit in my pajamas and watch two or three movies a day. And it's nice, Good choice. It's, it's nice to do that. It's nice to make, you know, I always believe that when I'm doing these train, these training for these challenges, you know, rest is just as important as, as exercise. But going back to your, your original question, yes, what the military did for me was that, was that routine. And structure and, and you and what was i loved about the military is they kept me busy there was never a day especially in the special forces there was never a day you had a day off you know they always had something for you which was good because your mind was active and you're being physically active um and and the, the worst thing for me and probably was my injury my injuries that just stopped me i was going from 100 100 mile an hour to just stop and that's the only way i can relate to sort of people who don't have a focus or a challenge to aim for you just end up in this rut and I soon got quite depressed in the fact that I couldn't be physically active so I'm always a, a, a promoting especially even mental health that you know physical activity helps your mental state you know just do something and you, you touch on the military the military's changed as well you know we all talk about the technology that's introduced that's now starting to see that in the military as well when I was in the military there's no the beginning was no mobile phones, so we're quite sociable characters. So we used to just we'll go to the bar, you know, I mean, we'll have a few drinks, you know, and things like that. Whereas now I'm hearing that a lot of the guys now they'll go to the gym and they'll just stay in their rooms because everything's online and they communicate mm. with home on, online. So you are seeing those changes in the military now as well. Um, but you know, again, the military is good in bringing that that camaraderie, that you know that team player stuff together as well 
And do you think that sort of that tribe effect, you know, that kind of sense of belonging? Because I've had friends who have joined the military who have come from, you know, like divorced parents and happy childhoods, and they've kind of felt like it was the first place they were accepted, like they were actually together and it was like a brotherhood. And a lot of young guys especially don't have that male or a a positive male role model in their lives. Do you Mm. think that's something that men struggle with? Can we replicate that military tribe feeling do you think is it possible um it it, it is possible I, I think most you know if you're part of a tribe whether you're in the military whether you're part of a football club whether you're part of you know you work at somewhere for, for 20 30 years you're part of a a small tribe you know i i when i got injured from the special forces and left i went through what was called an identity crisis you know i'd gone mm-hmm. from being in this tribe here and i'm not allowed back in to what other tribes can I can I get into? So people like to be part of something or part of a, of, of a group. So yes, I do think that other organisations can replicate that of, of the military. What they can't replicate from the military is that some of the conditions and environments that the military can put you in. Um, you know, I do a lot of stuff with with the big corporates talking about the battlefield to the boardroom, and they're like, you know, we talk about leaders working under pressure and, and we get that naturally in the military and they try and replicate that but they can't but actually tribal being part of a team part of the tribe you can you can replicate that so and I think that, that's quite important and and as, as I said my identity crisis was like where do I now fit in society I've left this unit here having a role having a purpose I knew what I was doing day in day out for the next two years to how do I now fit in society? And that was, that was quite difficult for me. And that's why I then naturally went into the private security sector. It's hellish that like when you're kind of looking, going, where do I fit in? And you, you like, that's part of the reason I started the podcast was I didn't feel like I fitted in to anywhere. And there was no, there wasn't like many people around that I could go and connect with. I lived in a small kind of like fishing village and it was like, Oh, where, where, where's my tribe? Why do I, where do I fit in? You know what I mean? It's, and it's such a strange kind of, so, so allowing the podcast allows me to connect with top performers like yourself and learn these amazing techniques and mind hacks. But what you've worked with some amazing people from SBS to SAS to American, the SEALs, et cetera. What have you noticed about top performers? You know, have you noticed like a set kind of outlook on life, abilities? I know you've said about how you need to have the experiences to be experienced, but mm. what do you think sets top performers off compared to sort of the, the average grunt? Um, I mean, there's a mixed bag, you know, and I'll probably contradict myself. There's those who thrive and they, they just want to perform. They're out there every day pushing themselves to the limits. But then there's guys I work in the Special Forces that they were like that, but they weren't as you know, weren't laser beams. They were just like, we're just chilled. We will just go with the flow. So I think it's the balance of being disciplined, also being quite relaxed, you know, especially the special forces. You know, I I talk about the difference between, I call it the green army, which is like, you know, the majority of the army and the special forces. And and selection, selection is that discipline. Selection is that, it's called selection for reasons, to identify the right individuals to do the roles that we do in the special forces. Our roles in the special forces are very different from the 
from the Green Army. So you tend to find those in the Green Army are very disciplined. They like to know where they're going to be, what time, where and what, and things like that. Whereas in Special Forces, it's like you, you could end up in a country and there's no... There's no infrastructure, there's no communication, and you you just sort of make it make it happen. So those sort of individuals are quite relaxed. They're quite they think on their feet. They react to situations as, as they as they happen. So it, you you do see a real variety in individuals, and that's the great thing about special forces is the fact that if we were all the same, you know, it wouldn't be a good team. You need a team of four or six guys which are. All individuals, individual characters have strengths, have weaknesses, and that makes your best team rather than having a team of four or six who are all mm. exactly the same, have the same strengths, have the same weaknesses. So there is no sort of template of this is what a special forces soldier is. No selection, the six month process gets you, it, it sort of, it gets you from one point to another and it gets you into this almost like this. It's not carved out yet. You get carved out when you join your unit. You've just got the basics to now join that unit and they will then start chipping away and carving you out to that, that unique special forces operator. So, but I think the, the key message regardless is, is mindset, is attitude. It's, it's the attitude. It's mm-hmm. we can, I can, uh, we will. Uh, the unrelenting pursuit of excellence. If you're going to do something, you do it to the best. Your ability and the great thing about special forces, what I love is the fact that I now joined the unit with like-minded individuals who wanted to push themselves to the limit. So I've now found my new competitors. <laughs> so I've gone from competing down here alongside the Marines and, and the parachute regiment to now competing against the SAS and the SPS. And I loved it. I just stepped up another level. So, And do you think it's also that kind of we control the uncontrollables you know, or we focus on what we can control and ignore what's uncontrollable. You know, yeah. that you can, you know what you're to do. You've got your mission in your mind and you just work on the fundamentals. You're a master of the, of what you need to do. You know, you're not sort of fancy. You just go and get it done. Cause like I do a lot of jujitsu, for example, and they say about Roger Gracie, he's like the best in the world at the fundamentals. Like he's a master of fundamentals and he uses the basic techniques but at such a level that he can beat the higher black belts. Do you think that's the same with like top competitors is that you just focus on what you can control and then you just utilize your, your skills to the highest level possible? Yeah. I think you think you hit the nail on the head. You can't control the uncontrollables. And, and again, you need to get, you know, those in special wars, they get out of their mindset, you know, can't control the uncontrollable. When you go on the ground, it's all right having the best plan in the world. Mm. Things never go to plan. And so as long as you, and that's where selection's great, you know, selection when we go to the jungle for six weeks, you know, we don't teach you to do triple backwards somersaults and throw ninja stars. It's actually basic <laughs> soldiering done well. And it is, it's back to the basics done well. So it's those fundamentals you talk about. So we always want to have that fallback. So when we're on the ground and things go wrong, you know, we always go back to the basics and it's just basic soldiering done well because actually to do soldiering basics well is actually hard you know as you touched on we're in a world where people like to take shortcuts <laughs> and so and, and and that's where yeah. selection is you don't do shortcuts it's just the basics done well we don't have gps we have map and compass we go back and that's where um yeah when situations happen we just react to them and the great thing about it selection you've got guys from different backgrounds who may have experienced certain things as well and you just use that knowledge they've got and one of the things we used to do 
uh, when we came off the ground or off exercise or off operations. It's called a hot debrief, which would be quite good for your listeners. It's like before we go clean our weapons, go get food, get showered or whatever, we you know, have this hot debrief. And the three questions were, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And if we were going to do that again, what would we do differently? So we're always learning, we're always learning. We're not the best special forces in the world because we've got the best caliber of guys and we've got the best training. It's because we're always learning from our mistakes. Uh, and they're just then trying to get better and better and better. Because that's something I did notice with when you were talking about, like the you know your your cycling challenge or with yeah. COVID affecting the, the you know your kayaking challenge. It's you always seem to be very fluid. You're very much kind of like okay, that can't work, so let's change to plan B. Let's modify that. Let's take this step there. And that seems to be a very kind of special forces attitude. It's like the mission will evolve and adapt on the ground. You know, you kind of know roughly what you need to do, but you will join the, the the pathways to get to that point. Yeah. And so do you think, like, you've talked about selection and you've, you had a great thing where you said, let the instructors fail you, don't fail yourself. Do you think that's the thing is nowadays is that we're so used to just, okay, if, if it's a long journey, no, nah, I'm not doing that. You know, we're too, we're so used to comfort that we look for the easy things. And that pursuit of you just going, I'm going to cycle John O'Groats to Land's End. You know, mm-hmm. I want to challenge myself. Is that missing, do you think? Where, how does that mindset help you become the the amazing guy that you are? Yeah, I think going back to your original one about the 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 planning. So, you know, you know, you talked about you know, COVID effect, the, the kayaking challenge and, and things like that. So, so in the military, so I'm I'm not a kayaker, I'm not a cyclist, but what the military are very good at is planning and execution. So I just took a military set of orders you know, and just crossed out ammunition. But what a military are quite good at is they, they talk about actions on, right? Actions on, should this happen? This is what we'll do. Actions on, this happened. You know, so you have contingencies. So that's what I still do in life. I was like, well, we can't do that. What's the contingency? You always have a contingency in place. And that's come from my time in the military and, again, in the special forces. The, um, yeah, you talk about the, the easy way out. You know, when I um, when I was about to do my bike ride, we had a big fundraising event in Aberdeen. We raised seventy thousand uh, pounds a night there. Fifty thousand pounds of that was actually to to um, be a deposit on the hotel, the Hilton in Park Lane, for when I came back from the challenge. So before I'd even gone on the challenge, we we're already planning the welcome back party. <laughs> and <laughs> That's so, awesome because you have to have that in place and and. A friend of mine, Amanda, who, who ran, she does great event planning in London. She used to say to me, you know, during these meetings, she goes, what is the contingency? And I never asked, I never answered her. My wife would answer and say, well, we're going to Dean's funeral. That's the contingency. But actually, when I finished the challenge, I sat down with her and I said, look, Amanda, I didn't tell you there was a contingency because for me, if I knew there was a contingency, if I knew there was an easier option, if things were getting hard, you naturally want to take that route. So for me, the only option was to complete the challenge. But as you rightly touched on there, people will try and take the easy route. So I always set myself challenges and don't give myself any contingencies. The only contingency is, is to complete it. So with most challenges, whether it's physical challenges or challenges in life, you have a start point and you have an end and the start point and the objective. The, the route there is never, if, if it's straight, 
perfect, but it never is. So you just need to bounce along there and just react to what's happening. Don't get too upset if the plan changes. No, just react to that situation. No, the first thing I say is anyone's lives at risk. No, then we can have a cup of tea and then we can sit down and we can, we can change the plan. But people do get so really upset when their plan isn't, you know, something happens. And again, it's going back to you can't control the uncontrollables. Things will happen. We can predict COVID. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I just have to go with the flow. Well, while COVID's happening, I'll move me and my family to California to give myself better opportunities and, and things like that. You know, that wasn't the plan before COVID. So you just react to the situation in front of you. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy. So how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. I love that. It's like, okay, I'm stalled here. Okay, how can I keep this pursuit? How can I keep going for this chase, the pursuit of excellence? Okay, let's move to America. That'll give me more opportunities to do these things. And do you think your times with like speaking to like fixers in Libya, the tribes and all the, the different countries you went to, you know, and working with all these amazing people, have, has it built up this kind of ability to network and connect with people that you think helped you in doing these challenges, you know, like leading teams and dealing with corporates now? Do you use these kind of military like relationship building techniques with the people you speak to? Yeah, I think we, I think what you, you know, we, you, we talk about my USP that I take a sport and find the hardest challenge in the world. My wife will tell you that my USP is that I can relate and communicate with anyone from any background, from any, any country. So going into the security industry, I work on my own majority, you know, Somalia, Yemen, Libya and things like that. And what I picked up from my time in the special forces is, you know, everyone has this perception of special forces because of Hollywood. I'm, actually generally pointing and directing Hollywood, is that you know, <laughs> 25% of what we do, you know, is is, is that all that, that sexy stuff you see on the telly. Well, actually, 50% of what we do is unsexy. It's understanding, it's called support and influence hearts and minds, understanding the demographics, the politics, the tribal influences, you know, being embedded with locals, sitting down with them, sharing bread, sharing coffee, understanding the the ground situation, not what's on the TV, but actually what's happening on, on the ground. So I picked that up from my time in the military and I've naturally brought that into the private security sector. But yeah, I, and now when I guess speak for the big corporates, you know, everyone, everyone you should show respect to everyone is part of the team, you know, in the special forces for every operator to get off the helicopter, it took seven other people in the military, seven per one ratio. And that's the same when you work in the corporate, everyone from the cleaner opens the door in the morning to the cleaner shuts the door at night. Everyone is part of that team and you show them all the sort of same respect as well. And they will show you respect and you will see, you will see the return. And I, I do that, you know, whether I'm chatting to Prince Harry or whether I'm chatting to a homeless child in Moss Side, you know, I will, you know, I don't change my tone. You get exactly the same tone. 
because that's what I always say to people is you should treat the janitor the same as the CEO. I was always raised with the threat of a wooden spoon on my arse. Like if, you know, you, you spoke to everybody the same, you were polite, you were social, everybody deserved the same level of respect. And I think sometimes you see that difference now. People kind of just, it's like, oh, that's beneath me. Oh, I don't deal with that kind of, I don't deal with that kind of jobs. And it really frustrates me when you think, Everybody deserves that level of respect regardless. And you seem to have this amazing way of connecting and just getting things done. And do you think that's down to your networking skills? Is the ability that you can build these amazing relationships? Yeah, I think it is. I think my wife's right. You know, I can make friends with anyone. And, you know, although the figure that I look like, quite muscly, bold guy with tattoos, it's strange (laughs) how actually... You know, aesthetically, I look scary, but actually I'm, I'm not at all. And it's, you know, and for me, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, communication. You know, 75% of communication is nonverbal. It's the way you come across, you know. So, so for me, when I'm in, when I'm working abroad, I don't wear sunglasses. You know, I like to see people see the eyes, you know, just a little smile here. And then you can sense it as well. And you go with your gut. So I know when I go see people, I get a, a, a sixth sense whether they're, whether whether they're nice or not and and then sort of work build that relationship up from there because you know we talk about you know single-handedly evacuating embassies you know evacuating oil companies and and things like that there's so many other great stories in in my time in the security industry but actually none of it would be achievable if it wasn't for that local community and this is where a lot of other security you know i do a lot of talking about security and this is where a lot of security companies get it wrong is they think that they can come in as westerners and bully their way through and they just hit hurdles um so this is where that respect and communication comes in and this is where you then are another level above them and actually achieve stuff that they're unable to achieve regardless how much money they've got how big their organization is because there's definitely something i find is it's not the hard skills you know it's not like can you fire a certain kind of machine gun can you do this can you do that it's the soft skills it's the people skills it's you know it's can you talk your way out of uh an issue with like five guys a checkpoint with guns you know without kind of causing a diplomatic um sort of incident and i think a lot of people struggle with that it's like oh i can bully my way out of this and you're like well why do you need to and you learn that with jujitsu it's the it's the softness, but also the hardness when it needs to be. Um, so you, you had. Mm. No, going back to your soft skills, it is. It's all about it's the soft skills. It's communication. It's you know, I was, I, I do, I, I sit now with a lot of guys and girls when they transition really struggle in symmetry and they struggle talking to people. They talk to people like they think they're sergeant majors. You're, like, right, you're no longer a sergeant major. It doesn't matter how many medals you got, what letters you got behind your name. You're on a level playing field here now. And I was guilty of it myself when I got out initially. You know, I was injured and things like that. And I was like, oh, civvies, they don't understand. They're always late. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I use that as an excuse. But in fact, I then realized actually this is the rest of the world and this is the military. You know, these are the veterans. You know, we don't, we don't need them to fit into our world. We need to fit into their world. We need to change the way that we act, the way that we communicate and things like that. The way that we communicate works well in the military, but doesn't always work well in this in this in this arena. And that's where, you know, a majority of people then work in the private security sector. And this is where you're seeing issues, is that they think it's just an extension of their time in the military. It's like, well, you're not. You are an ambassador or representing whatever corporation or, or brand you are. And that's where I see a lot of people struggling. But that's where my soft skills have been there. So I know when 
when and when not to communicate in certain ways, you know, and I, I think I've mastered that. Um, but yeah, this is where some people really struggle in, in that, in that transition. Cause you've really noticed some people can't connect for shit. Like they, you know, that even just sit and have a conversation for five minutes while you're doing a task and they go, Oh, uh, what do I say? And you're like, yeah. You just treat them like a human being, you know. It's, yeah. Well, one of them, um, I look after PhD students is like my full-time job. And, you know, I'm sort of like a project coordinator, make sure they don't break shit and get stuff done. <laughs> um, basically, you know, I meet like their milestones and all that. One of my former students was looking at, he was um, a champion for the military services for the university. He'd been a former, like former soldier. Something he was looking at was the transition from, the coming out the services to civilian life and how a lot of people didn't have that basic skills they were never taught how to your council tax how to set up your electric supply and stuff like that and you've you've talked about that how did you find that transition did you struggle with it or you know was, was it something hmm. no i think you touched it right it's a good point you bring up you know when you join the military at 17 the military take over and now your mother your father they clothe you they feed you they pay you on time. They pay the heating bill for your room on camp. You know, I didn't know what council tax band I was paying. I didn't care. I was doing a job. <laughs> I was doing a job I love. So they take away all those distractions, really, so that you can just, you know, so when you get paid at the end of the month, that's your money. That's not you to pay. You know, all your national insurance has already come out. That's yours. So that's your, your beer funds, as I say. So all that other stuff that majority of the civilian community all understand about getting in touch with their council and things like that, we, we don't have sight of that. So 16 years later, I still don't have an idea about any of that. So then I then found myself you know, leaving. But the, frankly, for me, my wife was very entrepreneurial. You know, my wife was bank manager for three of the banks in, in, in Aberdeen. So she picked up those reins where the military dropped me off. And I was very fortunate in that. And, you know, but I do see uh, veterans, their transition can either be turbulent or quite smooth and it's it's that that sort of area but for me it's the support network they have around them normally i see those that are struggling don't have a support network you know if you have a strong support network that sort of helps but when you leave the military you know they teach you they don't teach you about you know who to speak to in the council you know about living as a civilian you know those sort of soft skills being able to talk to 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 civilians as well it's all about you do two things it's cv and interview technique well I've never had an interview and I've never needed to write a CV, so that's wasted on me. But, you know, what's an NDA? How do you, how do you write a proposal? You know, things like that. And so they are missing a lot of, a lot of skills which could help um, a lot of them transition. And they sort of, uh, once they're out, that's, they're no longer their responsibility. And it's a real shame. And that's where we're seeing issues. Yeah, because my mum works for a housing society. And that's what she was saying is a lot of these people who are coming out of prison or the homeless ones, they're, they struggle just to come in and say, like, how do I set up a phone account? How do I, like, who do I speak to to do X, Y, Z? And it's the basic skills that we take for granted because we were taught them, you know, yeah. in a certain, by doing them in a certain job. And you think, oh, everybody knows that. But a lot of experts forget that is you're only an expert in that area because you know it compared to somebody who doesn't. And I, I, I think I a lot of people. Know. My wife does it all. Eh? <laughs> 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 I mean, 
your your wife sounds amazing. I mean, like the stuff that she's done, the level of support she used to look after. You know, she had just had the child who you said, okay, I want to take out our savings and I want to go buy some weapons and, you know, set up yeah. my, my, my plan of like escapes and things like that. Yeah. What has that taught you about relationships? You know, have you found something? Is that is that giving you that connection? Has becoming a father changed you in that way, do you think? Um. Yeah, I think I think what what surprised me, you know, is is when I met my wife. She you no, know, she was she has the same mindset of those that I was working alongside. She was striving to be the best that she can be, and she she she's the reason I, I do all these challenges. She, she, she's like, well, if you can't do it, then don't do it. So she pushes me um, uh, as well. So I was very we're very fortunate because I know that some some guys and their wives they, they would never work together, but from moment I left the military, you know, me and my wife worked together on everything. So the security companies, my wife runs all the, everything behind the scenes. So when I'm evacuating embassies, when I'm evacuating all companies, she's fully involved as well. Because um, what I tend to see, and that's all about communication, she's fully aware of everything that I'm doing as well. And, and we have something in common. Um, it gets to the point that we're in the evening, we're still talking about work. There needs to be a, a, a cut-off. Um, <laughs> But for us, you know, our, our, our end goal is to help help others. We do a lot of philanthropy work, philanthropy work, um, but also give ourselves the best life for our children as well. So we have a a similar goal as well in that, and that always helps as well. So I always see that again, going back to that transition, those that do well are, are smooth is because they have a strong support network with their partner, and those are quite turbulent because they're trying to do it on their own. Um, you know, you tend to find that a lot of guys, when they leave, it's that their wives are like, well, I've been with you for 22 years. I've supported you. Now it's time for me to, you know, go do my thing. And it's like, you know, cracks start forming. And and also the fact that they're not used to their husbands being home. <laughs> Some people can't find out that they actually can't live together before <laughs> they've left the military as well. And, you, and there's a I've... high divorce rate as well because of that. So, um, so yeah, again, that, that, that adds issues to those that are transitioning. Because I, I love that when you were talking about like how your wife had worked out, you'd only been home for something like 62 days in a few years. And, you know, it was that moment of kind of like most women would be getting driven crazy with this. But she said, OK, so you, you've injured your leg. OK, let's set you up a business. Well, you know, so she pulled out her laptop and started doing it. And I love that relationship that you have. It's the let's just keep working and helping each other. It's like, what's your goals? How can I help? And you it's you're working together to build a united yeah. front. Yeah. I think so how did you, you, how did you, you sorry, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, uh, um, how, how, how did you like, how, uh, that, how did you find such an amazing person? Cause I've struggled. I'm like, I'm single at the minute and every person I meet like wants to sit in the pajamas and uh, watch scrubs while I'm coming back from jujitsu bouncing, you know? Yeah. Um, I think, I think I was very lucky. Don't, don't get me wrong. Even some of my friends are like, Oh, we, we could do with an Alana, you know, I, I would like to meet an Alana, you know, but, you know, I think for us, we soon identified our, our strengths and weaknesses. You know, Alana knew who I was and where I come from and things that she knew I was driven. And so she knows that having a nine to five job isn't going to help. Me. You know, it, it's going to affect my mood. I'm going to be a miserable sod to live with. So she's like, ah, you just go do, do what you need to do. But, but she's still involved in it. You know, like the bike ride. You know, she was the campaign director, ran all that, did all the fundraising as well. So we felt like we were doing it together. We weren't doing it alone. Um, so I think that's the key one is bring, if you can, bring your partner in, get them involved so they feel like they're, 
they're, they're part of it. I mean, strengths and weaknesses wise, you know, my wife's very entrepreneurial. There's no point in me trying to deal with the business side. Let her deal with that. I'll deal with, I'll do the people skills. I'll do the fitness side and things like that. And actually, when you've got all of those skill sets, it's quite a powerful team. Because you've talked about how you struggle with delegating things. You know, you said that you, you struggle with like letting others in. You know, that probably comes from your sort of special forces. It's like, you know, the plan, you know, you, you can set the resources and you know exactly what's going on. Do you find, I mean, since when you had the accident, you know, have you actually started looking at it as a positive now? It's let you go and do these amazing things. Have you come to terms with your sort of your military, like end, journey ending the way it did? Because you just seem to go from strength to strength, but do you still struggle with that at all? Was writing relentless, was this kind of cathartic at the time to kind of come to terms with what happened? Yeah, well, I, sort of, I think it all sort of fell. Everything, I didn't plan anything when I left the military. It's all sort of come around by accident, you know. So when I left with the injury, then worked in the security industry. And, and for me, with my mindset, I didn't want to just, you know, go to Iraq or Afghanistan every six weeks and just get into that sort of routine. You know, my friends had their own security companies. And at the time, piracy was at, its, at the height. So they were all off the east coast of Somalia and Africa. I didn't want to compete with them, so I was trying to find a niche. So so for me, as you rightly touched on, I bought 30 weapons on the black market and buried them between Tunis and Egypt and started designing my own evacuation. As you do. As you do. And <laughs> and so, so for me, I did that and I, after evacuating the Canadian embassy on my own. As you rightly touched on, my wife had highlighted only been home 21 days in a 365-day calendar. So it was like something something needs to uh, to change. And that's when we then did the bike ride. And then because of the success of the bike ride, then came the books. It wasn't a plan. It was just that that thing, you know, just go with the flow. You know, if you see an opportunity, take it um, uh, and things like that. So, yeah, so that, it, it wasn't really, really a plan. I didn't, I didn't see myself guest speaking. I didn't see books. I didn't see documentaries and, and things like that. I did it. So, I wasn't smuggling people across borders because actually when I came home from the Canadian embassy, my wife highlighted the time that I'd been away. I soon realized that I was trying to match that adrenaline rush that I had when I was still in the special forces without actually coming to terms with the fact that I'd left. And that was five years later. Once that pin had dropped and I realized actually you're no longer part of the military, you're not, you're not, you're not in there anymore. You're on your own. And that's when things started to change. We did the bike ride, did the book, you know, you know, that's when a sort of re- realization is that you are not in the middle. You're not in that tribe anymore. Yes, you are socially with the guys. You still connect, but you, you know you're not going to be on operations with them. So for me, it was like, well, let's find our own operations. Because I noticed, like a lot of guys, like especially as they come to sort of like middle age, they'll say, "Oh, I'm having an identity crisis. I'm going to go buy a Porsche." <laughs> you decided to cycle fourteen thousand mile road after only cycling for about 60-odd miles each way. Yeah, yeah. 20 miles. Oh, miles I've done, yeah. 20 miles. <laughs> I just decided to fly the world record. But for me, it was, you know, I did it so, you know, it was about a month before my 40th birthday. So I'd done a sabbatical from the security industry, sort of hung up my security boots for a while. And, you know, my wife was a property developer and sort of was working with her. But she could see that glaze over my eyes at, 
you know, you need to do something. So I always fancied doing a world record. You know, as a young boy, we all read Guinness Book of Records. And yeah. So, yeah, I just started cycling. My injured leg was two kilos lighter than my good leg because of the muscle wastage. Um, so I just wanted, but as soon as I got physically active, it wasn't big miles from Peter Cooter to Aberdeen's about eight miles, eight miles there, eight miles back. But that cardiovascular doing something, you know, I, I felt a lot better. So I said to my wife, well, maybe a bike ride. And she found then the world's longest road. And so for me, me being me, I couldn't just go join, you know, Aberdeen Cycling Club. I had to be the biggest challenge in the world because then I had an objective. I had something to train, train for. And you, you, like usually, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to cycle this from this end to this end. I've got no contingency plan. I can't say, oh, I only did three quarters of it because you never cycled. You know, you set your target and you go for it. And then you worked. I mean, you've talked about there was a guy on the, like a mechanic that you had to let go on the support yeah. team. You know, I love the way that you kind of just accepted each challenge and said, okay, how do we fix this? How, what do we need to do this? You know, I mean, not, not many people doing a world record challenge would get invited to a, a royal wedding you know it's that yeah. kind of amazing like okay let's how do i change this oh i'm now going to break the record by even more time you know it's yeah. you just seem to have this way of going okay yeah that's a bad thing that's happened right how do i fix this how do i make it even better i love this kind of mindset you have you know using like instead of thinking oh my muscles are agony you thought i'm gonna have a can of coke or an ice cream as a, mm-hmm. as a wee rester how do you? How did you plan such an amazing thing where you'd only just start cycling, and yeah. then suddenly you're doing fourteen thousand miles? How, how does your brain <laughs> build this? You know. Yeah. The so the bike ride was fourteen thousand miles. So I had an objective, which was to break the world record. That was my own personal objective. That was to get me out on the bike each day and get myself training. The we, as you mentioned, like Prince Harry and I are good friends, so I rang him up. You know, we'd done a lot of philanthropy work, me and my wife, before um, in the military. And so I rang him and said, look, I'm going to do this. What challenge should we do it for? And he was about to launch a mental health campaign called Heads Together with his brother and Kate. So I had my objective, which was to break the world record. But the main objective was to raise money for this amazing cause, um, mental health. You know, everything from young children, teenagers, all the way through to the military. So we had a couple of, and they're a couple of little motivators for me as well when when I'm doing the challenge. Um, you know, trained for a year, and and we went on and did the challenge. But as you rightly touched on, then is, is how do you break? How do you break it down? Because you no, know, fourteen thousand miles, you wouldn't even get on. You wouldn't even get on the flight. So for me, I sort of took relate to what I knew or what I'd experienced before in the military. So, so like, are you special forces selection is six months long. So you don't, on day one of selection, you're not thinking about six months later getting your berry and belt. All you're thinking about is what do I, what's in front of me? What do I need to do today to get here for tomorrow morning? And, and that's what I did. So for me, I broke 14,000 miles into the 14 countries, broke the countries into days and broke them into four stages. Um, Cause nutrition and hydration were, key and paramount in this i was losing weight from the day i started to the day i finished so i needed to keep as much food and water on so i would just get on my bike cycle as fast as i could for two hours get off the bike food and water for 30 minutes discipline in my timings you know i was back on that bike in 30 minutes you know i wasn't chatting to the documentary team or having a selfie with some visitors or whatever and then i would just look the next hour the next two hours 
and that's what I did. So for me, I was only doing four training rides a day. And before you know it, you've done a day, you've done a week, you've done a country, you've done a world record. So you, you break it down. It's almost like chipping away at the iceberg. Don't look at the, the massive, you know, the, the, the final um, picture. Just look at what you've got to need to do today to then get there for the next day. And, and so that's what I did as challenge. And yes, you know, you're doing this for about three and a half months. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. You need to you get up every day and, and get on the bike. But for me, I also wanted to make what helped me mentally is I was hitting my objectives. I had, you know, wheel record was 117 days. I was aiming for 110. It wasn't because I wanted to smash it by a week. When I was doing the planning and putting uh, on paper, there was things that are out of my control, you know, natural disasters, coups in countries, you know, third-party influence. So should we encounter that, I had that week that we could eat into. So I was aiming for 110. So I knew what I needed to do mileage-wise each day. And because I kept hitting that and then going beyond it, mentally I was in a good place. Um, you know, so I always made sure, and I always say to people when they're doing challenges, you know, some people are, well, I'm, I'm 10 miles behind today, but I'll catch it up tomorrow. But you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, you could have another bad day and be 20 to 30 miles behind. So that plays with you mentally. So for me, every night when I went to bed, I was in a good headspace knowing I'm where I should be or, or well ahead of where I should be. And so that that always helped. And do you think that's part, like a key concept of being relentless? It's that kind of, I know my goals. I'm only going to look from A to B. I'll figure out how to get there, but I know what I need to achieve from here. And you're not looking at it like you're saying, it's kind of going 14,000 miles. I'll bugger that. I'm, I'm off to the pub. Yeah. But instead you're thinking, oh, brilliant. I only need to cycle for two hours. I can stop, have a kind of Coke or whatever it is, then go to the next one. Is that the kind of military thing of like, okay, land on here, go to your checkpoint, check your weapons, you know, that kind of. You, you have a set procedure, what you need to be doing. You just tick it off. And when you tick it off, you know where, where, where you, where you should be. The, um, you know, talk about the coke, you know, so I broke the ride into four stages each day. And so the first stage, I was quite fresh because I'd just woken up. So I just cycled as fast as I could. And that sort of, speed time distance would be able to identify how long I needed to be on the bike for the rest of the day. The second phase, I had lunch to look forward to. The fourth phase, you had the end of the day to look forward to. So on the third phase, I had nothing to look forward to. And your reference to the Coke was, I would have a can of Coke and that would be my look forward to. So I used to have give myself a little trick the mind of something to look forward to. So I always had something to look forward to on each stage. I love that kind of idea of like, oh, I'm going to have an ice cream just now while you're thinking. And then you get told about the Royal Wedding and you're like, all right, let's bring everything forward a week. So how do we increase it? You know, it was, yeah. I, I just love this positive mindset that you have. And it's, have you come, do you think um, you've, these kind of challenges are an offshoot from leaving the military? That do you still need that adrenaline? Do you still need that kind of challenge? Or is this just part of you as a person, do you think? Where, yeah, you know, do you think you've come to terms with it? I mean, it's a bit of both. Obviously, as a, as an individual, I obviously have that, that motivation and drive. And you know, for me, I I've got something to look forward to, something that I'm planning, something that I'm training for. Um, mm. So, but as I touched on before, what I where I'm different now from when in the military is I have a young family. So it's trying to find that balance of yin and yang. So when I talk about the river flowing. You know, your river needs to flow, but you need to control the speed of that. You know, for me, like, 
you know, 100 mile an hour doing 14,000 miles and, and, and things like that. So for me at the moment, it's just trying to find that balance of, of the family life, but still being able to to fulfill what I want to do and push myself. Because um, that's something I was very interested in was you were talking of going into like Libya and like escorting people out. You were talking about going in to do all these kind of missions and, you know, your your shirt was covered in blood because you had been helping in a road traffic accident and these sorts of things. How do you switch between that and finding the balance with a family when you're coming home? You know, you're not bringing... Because like I've spoken to people who have PTSD, I've dealt with, I've got depression myself, you know, where you kind of, you relive your worser moments. Yeah. How, how have you found that thing of going from back home with a family to suddenly going into a zone where there's bullets flying and potential danger? How is, do you have like a ritual, a mantra? How do you kind of switch between Dean the badass to Dean the family on? Is there a way you can do it, do you think? Yeah, I think obviously the time in the special forces help with that. You know, you'd be on operations, and then next thing you're back home, and you leave what you've seen, you know, back back there or or on camera. You don't bring it home. You know, for me, I think you know, I'm very very unique in that I can just switch on and off, switch on and off, and and it's understanding the environment. You know, I used to go places like say Libya, Somalia, and things like that. I used to see things, and you know, and I was guilty myself. You know, you'd have no electricity, and you'd, you'd see poverty and it's like I'm not going to take things for granted when I get home but you get home you soon fall into that 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 rut as well but the thing is as well I always say there's no point you know you see these guys and things like serve time in the military and they're trying to explain their stories back home and things like that. it's like you know no one will understand so there's no point in trying to explain it to them so I, I, I sort of have that is there's no point in me bringing that home you know that's that's where it is you know and you know you just need to focus on on, on, the, on your family time so i do have a, a bit of a two lives <laughs> it makes sense because i've noticed that with top performers is that kind of ability to just go they can be chatting and chilling and next second it's like okay i'm doing like you're saying i'm cycling forty thousand miles or you know i'm about to go and compete on like uh you know the, the championship final or whatever it's that way of just kind of like I don't know, it's like this automatic switch that you can just flick and it just kind of lets you go into it. I yeah. can't believe we've been talking for an hour. I mean, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. <laughs> so what do you think, if you had to kind of sum up the, the the pursuit of being relentless, of being a top performer, say if you had to set people listening three challenges, what would you want them to do to to be more like you, to become like not special force, but that kind of, yeah, the, right. you know, to yeah. be more Dean-like, I suppose, is a better yeah. way to put it. I suppose, you know, A is set yourself a challenge. I'm not saying cycle 14,000 miles. Set yourself a challenge. Write it down. But also break it down in, into manageable bite sizes. So, for example, if I, if I said to you, right, you know, you're going you're gonna to run the London Marathon next week, you know, you, you probably you, – firstly, you'll tell me every reason why you can't <laughs> rather than why you can't. <laughs> Definitely. So, so block out those excuses why you can't. But also mentally, like someone, if you're training for a marathon, it would try, most of them will try and run a marathon first. And it's like, I mean, because they fail, that will mess with them mentally. So set yourself small bite-sized targets, you know, four kilometers, and then done that, achieve that, five kilometers, and build up. Because then you, you're building up physically, but then you're building up uh, mentally. But then the other one is, is, is the people, again, people tell you why you can't do You know, anticipation is worse than participation. You know, I always look back on some of the things I've done, you know, selection, the bike ride, 
when I'm on it, like, never again. Looking back at that, that actually wasn't that bad. So, you know, it's actually just, just, just tricking mind, but also be disciplined as well. You know, put it down on paper, have a plan. Don't worry if you have a, a bad day or have a rest day. They're just as important. But you set yourself some sort of goal. So, like, after you've had these amazing challenges, how do you then say, okay, I'm stopping. I need to have a recover. I need a time. I need to chill. I need to be back home. Is that just flicking the switch again? Or do you kind of, like, when you came back, you went to, um, you just broken a world record. You went to the Royal Wedding. You know, you had a bit of crack with Prince Harry. Yeah. Suddenly you're back home. How how do you kind of come down from that? Like, you know, is it the same as when you're in the military, you're just sort of glad you're out of those situations and you're giving gratitude and appreciate what you have in life? Yeah, I think in reflection you do. You know, that was a strange period. In fact, you'd had to, you know, I'd spoken to previous Olympic, people in the Olympics in the World Cup, and they said when you do a challenge like that, you will go into depression because you doing a massive high, you've been training for a year, you've done the challenge and it's like, well, what now? But we had two highs in one week, smashed two wheel, re- wheel records, became the first man in history to cycle under 100 days. And then you had the Royal Wedding and then it was almost like nothing. But thankfully for me, we had um, we had a big fundraiser in six weeks' time. So I had something else I, 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 I could focus on. But yeah, there is a bit of a void afterwards. It's like, well, well what next? You know. But for me, it's that then... It's that family, you know, you then got to think about your family. So my wife sort of keeps me in line, you know, if I have any mad ideas, she's like, well, really? That's going to be another four or six months. So uh, so the difference now is is finding that yin and yang balance. Do you mean like kayaking, like somewhere that's never been kayaked before? Yeah, or? Exactly. yeah. <laughs> there's a few other ideas as well, they're getting banged about as well. So, bit, I mean, we just go with what's what's available and what we, what we can do. So we've got you know, obviously the, the Nile project, but now 2022 is a really busy year for me, which I can't really touch, talk on now, but we'll, you'll, you'll know next year. Um, mm. And so, you know, that's affected in now. So I'm not going to get too upset. We'll just push it to the right. Because you've done some amazing things. You raised an, an obscene amount of money for charity, you know, and you've done, you've helped so many people and you seem to want to go to the next challenge. And what can I do now? How can I keep betting myself? Mm. You know, this sort of relentless pursuit. But how, you know, people would have rested on their laurels and said, oh, look, I did this. I went to the Royal Wedding. Mm. What what would you want your legacy to be? What, you know, um, what's the kind of, if you had to write something on your tombstone, for example, what would you mm-hmm. want it to say? Because you've done yeah. some amazing things. Yeah, I think, like you said, you, you know, it could have gone special forces and a lot of guys rest on their laurels and that. But I always think you're only as good as your last, you know, competition. So, so for me... The problem I have is I set got the bar high, and then so mm-hmm. I struggle when I do the next challenge. I just want to go, go <laughs> even higher. So I, I don't know what my legacy. You know, I'm very fortunate. You know, I could probably say to you now, that's me now. I'm, I'm hanging up my boots and, and be more than happy that I've, I've left a legacy as well. But for me, I'm just you know going with with the flow. See where life takes me. See what opportunities we have here. Then obviously conscious then you know bringing the family up as well. And and, and I think. For me, I, I can say I've ticked many of my boxes, and there'll be more boxes to tick. But um, as long as you're always giving back as well, that's one thing me and my wife are keen on is, is the philanthropy side. If you're going to do something, you know, you see guys doing challenges, and it's like, yeah, but what are you doing the challenge for? And, and it's like, 
well, I haven't really thought about it. You know, it's all about the philanthropy, mm. always giving back. So as long as like everything we do, we, we can give back in some sort of uh, shape or form, then, then we're happy. I mean, obviously, you know, that rubs off on our, our children as well. Because I love the fact you did it for mental health. I mean, I've struggled since I was a kid. And I, like the fact that it's getting the support now. And a lot of young people who probably, when we were younger, you know, you were told you were stupid if you had dyslexia. You were told yeah. you just to grow up if you were feeling down and stuff like that. And yeah. now that we're getting, people are getting that support and it's becoming more sort of normal and removing the stigma for guys to ask for help and especially yeah. soldiers coming with PTSD. I mean, I know we're way over time. I'm really sorry for taking that. I'd love to do a round two because I think we're just touching the surface. But yeah, yeah, what would you yeah. want people to take from this? What do you want them as like a kind of a summary of how can we be like the more relentless in our own lives, do you think? I think, you know, I'd say set yourself goals, but achievable goals as well. You know, don't, go, mm-hmm. don't go too mad. Achievable goals. And once you've hit that, and then then – and set the bar higher. I mean, just go, see where you, see where you, where you go, see where you get to. Um, but I think one of the key things is, is what we touched on with Lana is, is having that support network as well. You know, if you're going to do something like try and get your partner involved as well, and that, that make things uh, quite easier. But obviously, mental health, like I say, was very new to me. You know, until Harry asked, would I do it for to head together? I wasn't really, I was aware of it within the military. I'd seen it first time with some of my friends, but I wasn't aware that how big it was about the whole of society and how important it was and things like that. So I have always, for me, promoted that physical activity helps your mental state. So my message to anyone is, right, just do do some sort of activity, whether it's walking, whether it's swimming, cycling or whatever, you know, go do something. It's, it's amazing how that is a, a great coping mechanism for mental health. So for those listening who think, right, this guy's amazing, right, apart from buying the book, which everybody should, how can we keep in touch? How can we see these, like, the next insane adventure that you're going to do in 2022 and beyond? Because I know you're just starting. You're just touching yeah. the surface of what you're capable of. But how can we keep track of you? How can we connect on social media, yeah, everything so, uh, and anything? Yeah, social media was a bit of a taboo for me, leaving the Special Forces. <laughs> you know, it was like... And now I know it's a bit, you know, you need that that sort of profile. So I am on on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, I'm I'm not one of these ones who puts a post up every day. You know, I'm very quite quiet at the moment. But we are about to really start ramping it up next year because next year we have about three or four big projects. So um, yeah, I haven't announced any of them yet, but you'll you'll see them in in, in the new year. But follow me on social media without a doubt. Well, that's it for another week, and thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.